0: Last time we met, we left St. Paul, washed up on the shores of an island unknown to the sailors, and all of the sailors and prisoners that were with Paul survive, and they wash up on the shores of an unknown island. The centurion had planned to just execute the prisoners before they jumped off the boat just to ensure that none of them would escape, but the Lord had promised to Paul that everyone would make it to the shore safely, which is where we will pick up here today at chapter 28. So, could we read Acts 28, verses 1 through 9, starting over here. One
1: Fire and welcomed us all because it was rainy and cold. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, the viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Paul shook the snakes off
2: into the fire and suffered no was death. A suddenly fall over, But people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall over dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing usual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an pest in your mind that he
1: was a chief of the God. He was him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured.
0: Let's go ahead and read verse 10 as well. They also us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we Alright, now somehow in there we skipped verse 4, so I'm going to go ahead and read verse 4 there. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Okay. So all... Well, how many people at first wash up on shore? How many people did we say were on the boat? All
1: of the people. All of the
0: people, but do we have an exact number? 276 people, and every single one of them makes it to shore alive. Now, when they, before they had been shipwrecked, they did not know what the island was. Even in the day, they couldn't tell exactly where they were. But now that they have washed up on shore, it says that they learned that the island was Malta, which is a very common. Well, it's a good stopping place for trade in the Mediterranean. There would have been a lot of traffic through there. The grain ship that Paul was on and grain ships like it would have frequently sailed by Malta, stopped at Malta. So the sailors there, once ashore, more than likely realized, okay, this makes sense, we're on Malta. Now, in verse 2 the native people, or as uh, your translation said, the islanders. The Greek word there is barbaroi, right? So it's the same word that we get, barbarians, but we shouldn't really think of these people as, you know, savages or uncivilized. The word used here means basically just non-Greek speakers. And we know from history that the Maltese were not savages but a colony of the Phoenicians and they spoke Punic which would have been similar to Aramaic and Hebrew and it's not like they would have been foreign to the Greek language either so Paul knowing both Hebrew and Greek would be able to communicate with these people fairly easily okay so All 276 people wash up on shore, and the native people show unusual kindness to them. Okay, now how many of you have hosted a party at your house that had more than 10 people? It's a lot of work to host that many people. Or a family gathering where there's 20-plus or 30-plus people. That's a ton of work. But here we see... 276 men wash up ashore, and the people of Malta welcome them. They, just, they come out, they build a fire, it's cold, it's raining, it's a winter storm, and they show incredible hospitality to Paul and the other prisoners, and then the Romans as well. Now, what might have motivated this for the people of Malta? Why would they show such kindness?
1: first thing that comes to my mind is if there were Roman soldiers there, they would not want to
0: offend Rome. That is a very good thought, yes. You know, when the centurion washes up on shore, it's probably a good idea to take care of him. It might be bad for you if you don't. In any case, the Maltese show themselves to be very welcoming and hospitable, and they prepare a fire... For Paul and the other survivors of the shipwreck. And in verse 3 we read that Paul himself is gathering a bundle of sticks to put on the fire. Which kind of indicates to us the character of St. Paul. Similar to our Lord who didn't come to be served but to serve. You know the, the menial labor of going out and collecting sticks is not beneath him.
1: This is a change in him, right? I mean, when he was a tax collector, would he have done manual labor?
0: Well, when he was a Pharisee, I mean, we know the work that he did was he just watched the coats of the other men as they stoned Stephen. So Uh, I don't know that he would have been, he was a tent maker, though, so he would have known physical labor. It would, have been, it would not have been completely foreign to him, but it just, it shows what a great man of character St. Paul was. You know, this task of gathering the wood for the fire is not beneath him.
1: But that's what after you saw the light,
0: right? After you became a Christian. Sure. Before that, he was considered a bad guy. Yes, yeah. And persecuting the church as well. All right, but what's in this, uh, this bundle of sticks that he tosses into the fire? What goes wrong? A viper. A viper comes out of it, driven out by the heat of the fire, and it says it latches and fastens itself to his hand. Now, there are some critics of the Bible who would read this verse, and they would look at Malta today, And they would say, well, there's no poisonous snakes or venomous snakes on Malta today. So this account from the New Testament has to be wrong. Well, what are some possibilities then that would um, explain why there would be a viper on Malta years and years and years ago, but not today?
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, so he have hitched a ride there, or.
0: That's one possibility. Could have gone
1: there. Years, could have gone
0: That's another possibility. Weren't they, weren't, weren't they washed ashore by a bad storm? hmm. And don't
1: the seas, the waters, bring in all kinds of, of snakes and what have you when there's a bad.
0: I don't know about that. It's possible. That happens in Florida a lot yeah. when there's flooding. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean there's The fact of the matter is is that St. Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Scripture, records for us that there was this poisonous viper on the island of Malta and it in fact bit Paul. <coughs> and critics of the Bible are always going to be critics of the Bible. We believe the Bible. And as Leonard was suggesting, there could have been a snake stowed away on a ship. We don't know. There's plenty of trade going through there. Additionally, the population of Malta has grown significantly since St. Paul was there. And I believe a figure that I saw said that there's 1,200 people per square mile. That's not a whole lot of room for there to be poisonous snakes and humans together. So the snakes potentially could have gone extinct or have been wiped out over time. It so...
1: He didn't say that he bit ball. He latched on to him. Which is more than a bite as I believe it. How do you mean? Well, the snake, he didn't just bite him and then let go. Oh, right. He was
0: attached. M-hmm.
2: He
1: was gonna
0: be there <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point, Ken, because it says, you know, it was fastened, and then in the next verse, when Paul brings up his hand, it's hanging there from its fangs in his hand. So it is mm-hmm. properly latched on, which, again, will demonstrate the fact that it was a miracle. The snake wasn't just coiled around his hand or was trying to constrict him or something no it actually did bite him and it was a venomous snake What is the reaction of the natives when they see this snake bite Paul? What do they say right off the bat? I
1: think he's going to die.
0: They're just waiting for him to die.
1: They think he's a murderer. They
0: a Now how do I mean how did they get that? Why would they instantly think that he's some sort of a murderer? Mm-hmm. I think this is a good example of even in the mind of the heathen, there is the conscience. So, reason, or maybe something that goes beyond reason, tells them that despite the fact that everybody here just survived this shipwreck, the fact that he got bitten by a snake must mean he's a bad guy. He has done something. He's a murderer. Which is interesting because these people, they're not Christians, they don't have that Christian background and the understanding of the conscience, but these things are written on their hearts.
1: But well, they also knew that the centurion was there for a reason
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that they were transferring prisoners.
0: Prisoners, right. And
1: so, Paul being one of them, they may not have known who all the prisoners were because of the chaos that happened. <coughs> With the shipwreck and everybody being washed on, on shore, but they figured
0: out Paul was one of them. And he must have been a real bad one too for that snake to come out and get him. All right, now in my ESV, in verse four, it says, "Though he escaped from the sea, justice." And justice is capitalized. Does anybody else's translation have justice capitalized? A
1: couple yeah, I do, uh, we
0: yeah. There's a little bit of a question there as to whether or not the people of Malta are referring to a deity which represents justice, some false god that they worship, or some false idea for a capital J, justice, or whether or not it's just the plain sense of the word justice. You know, um, this is a bad man. The snake has bit him. Justice has been met. He will now die. We don't really need to get hung up on that, whether or not it's justice with a capital J or a lowercase j. The plain sense of the text is the same regardless. But justice has not allowed him to live. They expect Paul to die now that he has been bitten by this poisonous viper. But they wait and they wait and they wait. And he doesn't drop dead. And then what do they assume? He's a god. He's a god. Is this the first time that people have thought Saint Paul was a god?
1: He well, we did heal people, so they probably, if they weren't believers, that would seem. To-
0: Right. He has been mistaken. Yes. 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 Where? Pastor, where exactly is it?
2: I want to say, um, like, uh, like home, like home. okay, okay. So, so this is. They don't speak the same language. And so, uh, Paul. Okay.
0: So this isn't the first time that this has happened, yet we don't see recorded here the fact that St. Paul corrected them. But we, I mean, it's safe to assume that well, he was there, he preached the gospel, he would have explained to them, no, I'm not the God, like he said previously, the servant of God.
1: The God that they were thinking he was was a, a little, small-g God.
0: He would have told them about the one true God. Okay, so St. Paul survives the snake's bite, and this brings to our memory... What our Lord says in Mark chapter sixteen verse eighteen, could I get a volunteer to look that up? Okay. And then also Luke ten verse nineteen. Another volunteer? Okay. Luke chapter ten verse nineteen and then Mark sixteen, eighteen. Okay, this, this is Jesus speaking. Whoever believes and is baptized will
1: be saved, but whoever does not believe will not will be condemned. And these signs will hurt those who believe. In the name they will cast out demons, they will speak in tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So that's the great, when Christ was telling the disciples what was their job. Mm-hmm
0: but we see there a direct reference to the fact that the apostles will be able to pick up serpents with their hands and suffer no harm. And then Luke chapter 10 I have given you authority
1: to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm
0: you. Again, St. Paul here being bit by this venomous snake and shaking it off and not dropping down dead is a fulfillment of these words from Christ. Any questions about that? Okay. The only thing that are you talking about what was it, Luke 10 or verse 19? That's in the chapter
1: where it says Jesus sends out the 72. Mm-hmm. So he's,
0: are, his, are they supposed to be considered part of the 72? Who? Paul. St. Paul. No, he would not have been considered part of the 72, but these words of Christ remain true for Paul. Okay. Even as the words from Mark chapter 16 remained true for Paul.
2: The names of any of those 72. We can make educated guesses, but we don't, and really that's the way it should be. <laughs> uh, in a hundred years, none of us, none of us will be alive, but people who are members of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church aren't going to remember uh, Adam Moline or uh, even Vicar Kerstein. They might have our name written on the wall, and maybe a picture of us, but they will not remember how smart and well-spoken I was, or anything like that, because that's not the important thing. It's not about Adam Moline, it's about Christ. And so when we have these people, like 72, it's actually good that we don't know who they are, so that we can let our focus be where it needs to be. And the same with, you know, with curses <laughs> and Pastor Moline, and it pertains to any believer in Jesus. Is that right? I would say, sending out the seventy-two and then even uh, Mark sixteen. These are. Uh, I'm stepping on the vicar's toes here, so maybe let him answer. It. Um, talking about this is the church. The pastors are doing this, and even the idea of serpents has more to it than just. You should talk about your crazy Floridians here,
0: bigger Okay. Sorry. There are Christians who read these verses and think that it applies to just all Christians everywhere. And where I'm from in Florida, I mean, we call it the Snake Church, but it's a church north of where I live where they have poisonous snakes and they wave them around in the congregation. And if you get bit, the Lord is judging you. You have been caught in sin. And they
1: call themselves Christian?
0: Yes. So... So did they live because they're a member of this church if they're bit by a snake? No, because the snake wouldn't bite you if you didn't deserve to die. But several times they've been shut down by the government because snakes biting people and then people dying isn't really a good thing to be happening. (laughs) But they keep coming back. They keep waving those snakes around. So um, we should not abuse our Lord's words like those Christians do back in Florida. Okay, so it
1: really is to particular people that are saved from a certain
0: I would say for certain the 72 whom Christ sent out and then as well as his apostles whom he has sent out. I don't encourage any of you to go picking fights with venomous vipers. If you do, record it. But,
2: but you should mean two. then, do tell us what uh, serpent no longer is poisonous to us.
0: Right, okay, so the, the devil, you know, that, that ancient serpent... Christians do, in Christ, have the power to stomp on the devil, his works, and his demons, because of what Christ has done for us in his victory over the devil. Is that what you're getting at, Pastor? Yeah. Okay. I
2: mean, so, in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Satan came in the form of a serpent and led humanity into sin. And... um, That's the picture that we have all the way from Genesis chapter 3, and it's brought to its completion then in the end of the book of Revelation, even where that ancient serpent, the father of lies, um, in Christ's death on the cross, the head of Satan is crushed, and he doesn't have power over us here and now. now. uh, again, this doesn't mean we should play with fire, right, and it doesn't mean that we should, you know, use Ouija boards or, uh, you know, Victor has a magic 8-ball and he's always checking to see if he should uh, brush his teeth or comb his hair and make things <laughs> seem certain. Sure. Uh, it doesn't mean we should play around with those sorts of things. But Satan doesn't have any power over us. His sting doesn't kill us. So death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? In Christ, we have eternal life. So we see this picture in this account. And it is a picture. It really did happen to Paul. He was bit by a snake. He did die. We should not go play with snakes. But in the same way, the ultimate serpent, Satan, doesn't have any power over us any longer because we have victory in Jesus. So I don't know if all those things, if we're juggling them well enough here or if that makes sense. But Keep that in mind as you hear this too. But I was also thinking, is it still that symbol of justice that has the snake wrapped around the that, symbol? I can't remember. That's the symbol for um, health care. Uh, and, and medic, medicine and medical workers and that, that's the same picture but that comes then from uh, during the exodus when the fiery serpents came into the camp and were biting the Israelites and Moses took the bronze serpent and put it on a pole and so in that way by looking at the bronze serpent the serpents didn't kill them, and we have the same thing Except we don't have a bronze serpent on a pole, we have a Jesus on a cross. And by looking at that, uh, we have that pole.
0: Okay, in verses 7 through 10, then, we see this figure, Publius, sort of the governor of the island. And he also treats Paul and his companions hospitably. And the father of Publius was very ill with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him healed him. I think this is interesting to draw out. Paul prays first and then lays hands on Publius' father and heals him. It's kind of like a weird order. What did he pray about? What did he pray for when he could have just laid his hands on him and healed him? What do we think is going on there?
1: God is acting through him.
0: Through his right, right. Does Paul ever act on his own behalf when he heals people? Is he doing it of his own will or his own power? No, it's always because of God. So we can interpret this then to be that Paul prayed to God for guidance here, and God said, yes, in fact, do heal Publius's father. And so then Paul was able to do that through the laying on of hands, and we know that Publius's father was restored to health. And then what happened? Everybody else came then to Paul. And is it, is it safe to assume for us that Paul just formed a big long line and just healed people and then sent them on their way? What else would he have done? He would have preached to the people of Malta and told them about Jesus Christ. Now, church tradition has it that Publius would have become the first bishop Of the Church of Malta that would have been started after Paul's visit there. Now that's not exactly 100% certain, but that's what the Church's tradition holds. Okay, let's read then verses 11 through 16.
1: With Lynn? After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting him in at Syracuse, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days. From there, we set sail and arrived in... Uh, three. Right okay. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached... There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome.
0: So Paul and the rest of them stay on the island of Malta for three months. And when winter had ended, then they get on another ship that's headed for Rome and set sail. Um, It says the twin gods as the figurehead for the ship. Those twin gods would have been Castor and Pollux the gods of the sailors. So they get on this boat that's decorated with the twin gods and they put in at Syracuse which is the island of Sicily. So they're moving from Malta north up to Sicily and then they're going to go in between the boot, the, the toe of the boot of Italy. Oh, we've got a map. Look at this. Up to Syracuse, then Regium, then through the Straits of Messina here, and up to Petioli. That's sort of the route that they're going to take here in these verses. When they get to Petioli, what do they find?
1: Brothers.
0: brothers. Who are these Brothers. Christians, He finds there, in Italy, Christians. And they invite Paul and whoever is still traveling with him to stay for seven days, which is a little unusual because Paul is a prisoner still at this point, being led by the centurions and the soldiers. But I think it's safe for us to gather from the narrative that we've had so far that The Apostle Paul is in pretty good standing with everyone that he's with. I mean, having promised that no one would perish in the shipwreck. When St. Paul is ready to stay for seven days in a place, that's allowable. So they stayed there for seven days and then they head on to Rome. Rome. And brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Now, the Forum of Appius and the three taverns, these places are 40 and 30 miles away from where St. Paul was. How was it that these people heard that Paul had come to Rome? Like, how did news travel that fast in the ancient world?
1: of their brother, I guess.
0: <clears throat> the Christians
1: shared with each other. And it passed on. That. I know they were traveling.
0: So. What were the Romans really, really good at building? And these stills in most places stand today. Roads. Roads. I think it's safe for us to assume that with the complex network of roads and travel and all of the bureaucracy and messengers and soldiers going to and fro, word would have spread rapidly that the Apostle Paul had come to Rome. And the brothers then are motivated by this to travel these great distances to go and see Paul. And what is Paul's reaction to this? He thanked God and was encouraged by it. If you think about it, um, three years prior to this, St. Paul would have written his letter to the Romans, which would have been delivered to the church in Rome by Phoebe. And it just would have been very encouraging to the apostle then to have this overflowing of joy and the brothers <laughs> coming to visit him from 30 and 40 miles away. Three.
2: Three. Which means if Pastor Hoppy was teaching on, he'd still be only halfway through teaching into the congregation. At all. <laughs> <laughs> just just easy.
0: Now the significance of Saint Paul coming to Rome is very great. He's the first apostle to make it all the way to Rome. St. Peter, we know, would have visited Rome after St. Paul, but this is a big deal. The the Apostle Paul arriving in Rome is not something to be discounted. All right, any questions about this little section here? Okay, moving on then. Let's read Acts 28, 17 to 22. Where did we leave off? So after three days then, in Rome, Paul calls together the local leaders of the Jews, which there would have been a substantial Jewish population there in Rome at that time. And he makes an appeal to them and explains to them why he's there, what the deal is, uh, what the charges are against him and sort of his whole story up to that point. There in verse 19, he says, But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my own nation. What Paul is doing there is, as he's explaining his case to the Jews there in Rome, he's making it clear to them that the charges have been laid against him. This isn't a case where he has made some sort of a countersuit or a counterclaim against the Jews of Jerusalem. Which, if that had been the case, he probably wouldn't have had very much luck continuing negotiations and talking with the Jews there in Rome. So he's there. He's been accused by the Jews in Jerusalem. Now he's waiting for his accusers to show up. Do the Jews there in Rome know anything about this? They not.
1: The Christians knew about Paul, but apparently the Jews there hadn't heard anything about
0: They hadn't heard anything about Paul or this case. They just have the faintest idea. It says, with regard to this sect, we know that, Everywhere it is spoken against. So they kind of have heard rumblings about this Christianity, maybe this guy Jesus. They've heard a little bit about it, but they don't, they don't know any of the details. They're so far away in Rome, they're sort of disconnected from that other part of the world. Okay, let's read verses 23 through 28. Are we back at the beginning? Okay, we're back at the beginning. Um, You said 23? Yes, yes, 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain
1: day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Mr. Rainer, among himself, did he heard against the call made one statement? The Holy Spirit was writing saying to your father through of the prophet. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. Because so this people's heart has become callous and I hear hear with their ears.
0: So St. Paul gathers together the Jewish leaders of all the synagogues there in Rome. He kind of lays out his case and why he's there. And they want to hear him out. He's talking about the Messiah, which is a topic that they would be interested in. So they arrange a day for him. They all gather together again. And from morning until evening... He expounds to them and testifies to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus. Now, what tools does he use? What is he using to explain to the Jews about Jesus, the Messiah, and the kingdom of God? Right. And what would we call that? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Right. He doesn't have the New Testament yet to work with, only the Old Testament. And he might have eyewitnesses that maybe he could perhaps call to. But in order to convince the Jews here in Rome, he needs to use what they would accept as authoritative, which would have been Moses and the prophets. That's the only way that he is going to be able to convince them, ...of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Was he successful? To some of them, but not all. To some of them, but to not all. And I think the language that's used there... ...kind of indicates a 50-50 split. Mm -hmm. So of the seven synagogues that would have been in Rome at that time... ...roughly seven... Half of them, three or four of them, the leaders of which would have been convinced by St. Paul, and then those synagogues would have become Christian churches. So in that way, St. Paul was successful. You know, the Holy Spirit worked faith in the Jews there in Rome and they became Christians. But not all of them, not all of them. And he concludes his day long exposition of the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, with a quote from Isaiah the prophet Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. St. Paul here is not saying that this exact passage from Isaiah is fulfilled in them there at that moment. It is in fact fulfilled by the Jews in the past. He says, your fathers. But in, in a way, he's reminding them The faithlessness of their forefathers, which brought judgment from God. I mean, that's also here on the line as well. Don't repeat the same mistakes as your forefathers. Jesus has come into the world. You killed him, and yet he is the Messiah, the one sent from God to save you. The one promised of old in the prophets and in Moses. So he kind of leaves them with that last warning as they depart. And what are they doing as they depart? Arguing. Arguing. Going back and forth. There in verse 25, we have a beautiful example of our doctrine of verbal inspiration. Luke writes, and Paul says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Right there we have the summary of the doctrine of verbal inspiration. The Holy Spirit moved, God works through the Holy Spirit to move men to speak and to write the very words of God. So that's pretty neat right there. We get it right here in the book of Acts. There in verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Could someone look up Isaiah 65, verse 1? Do I have a volunteer for that? Isaiah 65, verse 1.
1: I to who did me. I be I said,
2: my
0: Right. Here in verse 28, God being the salvation of God being sent to the Gentiles. That brings to mind every promise in the Old Testament of the fact that salvation is not only for the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now, what did we just celebrate last night in church? Epiphany. How does that relate to this idea of Gentiles and salvation coming to the Gentiles? The wise men were Gentiles, and they believed. So salvation is not only for the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And here in Rome, half of the Jews believed, half of the Jews rejected. And yet the gospel is sent forward to all men, including the Gentiles. All right, let's close out then by reading verses 30 through 31.
1: Before you at the 28th.
0: Oh. Yes. <clears throat>
1: he says they will listen. It's kind of a date against the Jews that are not listening. Right. And kind of rubbing it in their face that the Gentiles will listen, even though you
0: guys won't. Right. They might hear, but they never understand. Yeah. Their heart has grown dull. They've rejected God. All right, no, that was a good comment.
1: All right, 30 and 31. For two years, Paul stayed there in his own house and welcomed all who came to see him. 31. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and the teachings about Lord Jesus Christ without boldness and without hindrance.
0: So for two years, St. Paul stays there in Rome and continues daily. Preaching and teaching, helping the brothers there in Rome, as well as continuing to preach to the Jews. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here again we see St. Paul is afforded a little more freedom than your average prisoner. You know, he's not locked away in the dungeon yet He's more or less under house arrest and would have a guard with him at all times, perhaps chained to this guard that would go with him. But he would have a decent amount of autonomy. So he lived there two years. Well, then what? We've, we've run out of words to read. Yeah. What happened? Church tradition and history has a few things to suggest that might have happened. We can say with a a great degree of certainty that after these two years, St. Paul was no longer under arrest and he was able to travel about freely. And then at a later point, he was arrested again, brought back to Rome under much worse (coughs) circumstances, actual imprisonment, actually being locked away in the dungeon, at which point he would have been tried and then beheaded. We know this with great certainty. Now the question is, once he got out after those two years, what did he do? Well, under the two-year house arrest in Rome, Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And according to Philippians 2.24, in Philemon 22, he expected to be released from prison there in Rome. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, 2 Timothy 4, 20 all indicate he was freed and ministered in various regions the region of Ephesus, Macedonia, Miletium, and so on. At some point, he was rearrested, sent back to Rome. And then executed. Second Timothy would have been written when St. Paul was in the dungeon in Rome. Worse conditions than what he reports in Acts 28 verses 30-31. through 31. You know, just under house arrest. Able to move about freely. And he writes in... Let's go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. Do we have a volunteer who wants to read these verses? Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8.
2: For I am already being poured out of the drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved
0: his appearing. So I don't think he would have necessarily been writing those words under house arrest, with a good amount of freedom. He was released, he was able to move about freely for several years, was rearrested. writing, he wrote 2 Timothy from that dungeon there in Rome. So there would have been two imprisonments of Paul in Rome. And church tradition has it, We don't know for certain with the historical data, but some suggest that St. Paul actually made it to Spain, like he said he would there in Romans 15, verses 24 through 28, which I'll just go ahead and read. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And then in verse 28... When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So here in Romans 15, St. Paul is already talking about going to Spain. Whether or not he actually made it, we don't know for certain. Some traditions have it that he did, in fact, make it to Spain and had a little missionary journey there. In between his first imprisonment in Rome and his second But we don't know exactly for sure. Uh, We have Clement of Rome who writes that St. Paul made it to Spain. Or at least he writes that St. Paul made it to the furthest bounds of the West, which the furthest bounds of the West in the Roman Empire would have been the Iberian Peninsula, Spain. So as far as a timeline towards the end of St. Paul's life, we know that in 57 to 59 thereabouts, he's arrested in Jerusalem. And at some point during that time, he's also, well, 60 to 62, he's released. And then we know by the year 64, he, 64, 65 is when he's martyred, beheaded in Rome. So, there are some gaps there where it makes sense that he would have been free, able to move about, go on another missionary trip. Whether it was to Spain or not, we don't exactly know. Any questions there about the end of St. Paul's life and then his imprisonment in Rome?
1: Do we know how he died?
0: We know he was beheaded. Pastor, do you have any words in closing here at the end of the book of Acts?
2: What do you guys think about the book of Acts? <laughs> is it good <laughs> yet? <laughs> I think the important thing in the entirety of the book is it shows the continuity between the church then and now. The things that are important to the church are the word and the sacrament the preaching of Jesus Christ. And so, having read the entire Book of Acts and looked at it in detail, how does that inform Good Shepherd Lutheran Church today and in the years to come? What things do we hold as important and valuable, um, and what things maybe aren't quite as important and valuable? Those are some of the things that we can think about and, uh, and learn from this book. So, uh, I don't know, what do you guys think? In the so, truth of God's word and his promises. Now, And when we stick to those things, what happens? People are strengthened in their belief. Yeah. We're blessed. Faith is strengthened, the church uh, is strengthened, whether that means numerical growth, or we saw several times in Acts, numerical shrinkage. Uh, what other thing increases when we stick to God's word and sacraments? So we see especially Paul uh, towards the end. Increases his faith. Well, yeah, his faith is strong. Others are converted? Others are converted. When we stick to God's word and sacraments, how does the world uh, interact with us?
1: Some favorably, some not.
2: Some favorably, some not. There is some persecution that can arise. Um, And it's, again, Satan does not want God's word. In his truth and theory. He does not want the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, and so he always is seeking to undermine that. Through persecution, and sometimes just through apathy in us, and uh, I think we see in Acts that we need not have apathy, we need to be zealous about God's word and sacrament.